take your Bibles and turn them back to Luke chapter 2 tonight. Back to verse 25. I had um, originally decided and desired to preach another sermon to you tonight that was along the same lines of, as what we looked at this morning. So if we can wrap up this morning's message early, you may get a taste of it. Uh, two sermons tonight. You guys are lucky. I don't think we'll actually do that, but um, nonetheless, we'll see where we end up here. Trying to get back into the passage from this morning, <clears throat> back into the swing of where we were at. We have looked at thus far Simeon and his uh, character. Uh, who he is as a person there in verse 25, those four things mentioned by Luke, he's righteous, devout, patiently waiting upon God for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit is upon him. And he's a man who's <clears throat> actively led and influenced by the Spirit. Um, been revealed to him in verse 26 there the, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And the Spirit, in verse 27, led him into the temple at the same time that Jesus was brought in. And we focus primarily there in verse 28 through 32, where Simeon now has Christ taken up in his arms. And he's overcome, um, overcome by what God's allowing him to experience. He blesses God. He um, rejoices in God's faithfulness. He delights in his position before God, and he is longing now for it death his eternal home he's longing now for that better better country because he holds in his hands uh, the gateway to the father and that's what he highlights there in verses 30 31 and 32 uh, that this child is god's very salvation a salvation that is not hidden but is public it's prepared right in front of the world it's a salvation that is far reaching just as light travels across this world and touches every part of this world so too does God's salvation, and that light is a revelation for Gentiles, people who don't know God, uh, have no idea that God exists, and it's a, a light of glory to Israel who gets to enjoy God's, present with, uh, God's presence with them. And so that's what has made uh, Simeon ask and long for death, this child he's holding. That was part of the first three questions we asked. The other two we're going to try to hit tonight. The other two questions were what? What about Simeon's testimony of Christ makes Anna come alive and praise God? And what about Simeon's testimony of Jesus here makes Joseph and Mary marvel? So that's, that's what we're going to look at tonight, picking back up there in verse 33. In fact, let's just read here from verse 33 to verse 38, just to be refreshed. Luke writes and says, And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting 
for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we start there in verse 33. Joseph and Mary are now marveling. And it's a, a very interesting thought to me that they are marveling, that they're in wonder and they're in amazement. I wonder why would they be in amazement? Because at this point in Luke's narrative, in, in the infancy narratives, it doesn't seem like much would surprise them about Christ. It doesn't seem uh, that they would be amazed by this testimony concerning Jesus because they've heard already wonderful testimonies of Christ. Uh, so far, both Mary and Joseph have been visited by the angel Gabriel. Pretty miraculous to have an angel visit you and tell you all about this child that's going to be born. They've both experienced that. Mary has experienced Elizabeth speaking to her via the Holy Spirit and exclaiming to her the worth of her child. You remember in chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, Mary was even so overcome by that message, she wrote her song of praise there. She was just uh, exploding with praise to God because of what Elizabeth had said to her. Both Joseph and Mary had witnessed and even had been involved in the virgin birth. Really, what is more amazing than that? Both of them, at the end there of chapter 2, the, the birth account of Christ, both of them were present when the shepherds came and visited them and told them about a multitude of angels who came and worshipped God because of this child's birth. They'd heard all these things about Christ so far, all these miraculous things about Christ. So what is it here that makes them marvel? What could possibly make them marvel more than what they've already experienced from the angels' visits, the shepherds' visits, Elizabeth's visits, and even Mary's virgin birth? What, what else could grab a hold of their attention? What else in Simeon's testimony here uh, can even be on the same level as these other events? And I would say that while Mary and Joseph have heard that Jesus is the Son of God, they have heard that He's holy, they've heard that He's the long-awaited Messiah. They've heard that He's the one to reign on David's throne forever. This is really the first time that they have heard with their own ears that Jesus is the salvation of God and not just for the Jews, but for all people. That's the same vein that we're in here. That's the same thought that Simeon has just concluded his testimony with. This is God's salvation, and it's a salvation for everybody. It's a salvation that extends even to the unbelieving, idolatrous, pagan world of the Gentiles, those people who don't even know God. That's the salvation that this child brings. And for the first time, Mary and Joseph have been confronted with, Jesus isn't just the consolation of Israel. He's the Savior of the world. He takes the gospel. He takes salvation to all people. We have probably come somewhat dull in hearing that message, haven't we? Because we've rejoiced in that message basically our whole lives. If we've been a Christian from childhood, we've rejoiced in the message that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth for a long time now. But we need to be refreshed and reminded of the significance of this event. Realize God does not ever have to save anybody. The just reward and the just earnings of sin is death, right? Eternal punishment. God has no obligation to save anyone at any time ever. There's nothing within humanity that could force God or trick God into saving us. 
And while Mary and Joseph and while the rest of Israel could expect a redemption from God because God had promised it to them, they could not conceive that God would also save the rest of the world. You see, God had mentioned many times in the Old Testament that the gospel is going to extend even to the Gentiles. But for the Jews, they could not fathom why God would save a people who he had absolutely no relationship with. Why would he care about strangers? He's done all these works for us. He's brought us out of Egypt. He's performed the great exodus for us. He's given us the prophets, given us the oracles of God. He's given us the kings, given us the judges. Why does he care about strangers? Why does he care about people who have warred against us? Why does he care about people who serve false gods? What are the Gentiles to God? That's a natural question of the Jew. It's their stumbling block for God's salvation that extends to the world because Gentiles are not like God's chosen people. And yet here in this child that's in Simeon's arms, God reveals his good and loving nature far beyond what any Jew could ever imagine. Far beyond what Mary and Joseph had ever thought. His love is enough to save all people who would ever come to him in all ages and all places of the world. That's what strikes Mary and Joseph. They marvel because in Jesus, for the first time, they see the depths of God's love and God's mercy, not just for Israel, but for mankind as a whole. That is greater than the angels appearing to them. That's even greater than the virgin birth. That's greater than all the other things they'd experienced with Elizabeth, with the shepherds, and everything else they've gone through in the first 40 days and nine months of this whole episode. The greatest thing they've learned thus far. Salvation extends to the world through this child. So they're moved to wonder. They're moved to amazement. They're in a state of awestruck here in verse 33. Because... For the first time, they've been confronted with the reality that God's love is bigger, that God's love is more glorious, more rich than they had ever conceived and imagined before. And as I briefly mentioned this morning, when Simeon says that in verse 32, the salvation is a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, they know what he means by that. He means that all Gentiles can be recipients of divine grace. The oppressive Roman government can be recipients of God's salvation. The emperor Nero, who beheaded Paul and murdered so many Christians can be the recipient of God's divine salvation of forgiveness of sins they would have thought about the Samaritans the people that um, they saw as unclean they thought about the Scythians and the barbarians and other thieves and armies and oppressive people that have maligned them for millennia at this point that's what Simeon's saying this salvation extends even to them the worst of the worst it's no wonder then that we read in verse 33, Joseph and Mary marvel. This is a love and this is a redemption that really exceeds anything their heart could ever imagine. And that's true for us, isn't it? Isn't it true the more that we study God's salvation, it's far beyond anything we can imagine. You just think just for a moment here, and we won't go into all of the aspects of God's salvation but the fact that he doesn't just save us and leave us alone is enough to make us marvel he saves us he adopts us promises promises us an inheritance fixes for us a dwelling 
God's salvation is just an endless journey for the believer of God lavishing His goodness and His graces upon us. And it's a redemption, it's a salvation that even presses deeper than just the surface level of our lives. It's a salvation that changes our very hearts. The salvation that leaves God's fingerprints on our hearts, on our souls, the core of who we are. And so we ought to be like Mary and Joseph, awestruck by God, awestruck that God would change the very core of who you are, the very heart of humanity. He replaces our lust. He replaces our anger. He replaces all of our pride, our hatred, our ignorance with a heart that totally desires Him. He takes that which was enemies and makes them children. That's which was, that which was rebellious to Him and makes them His servants. And so every time an evil thought enters into our hearts and it is replaced by a godly thought, we too should be amazed that God's salvation is so far-reaching, so deep, so changing within us. It's so far-reaching, it changes us, makes us new from the inside out. So Mary and Joseph marvel. And they marvel because this child in, the, in Simeon's arms is more than they could have imagined. Imagine they knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the one to sit on David's throne. They knew all these Jewish aspects of Christ. But here they're confronted with the whole world will be reconciled to God through him. Simeon's not done with his testimony. Luke gives us a little break, a break from it, a brief um, statement concerning Mary and Joseph's reaction. But Simeon himself isn't done testifying about Christ. Verse 34 he tells us the high price that's going to be paid for this salvation. It's a price that's paid by this child. And it's this last part of his testimony that really tempers the joy of the salvation he mentions with the reality of sin. The reality, reality that we need a salvation in the first place. Think just for a moment the seriousness of sin is expressed in verse 34. Sin against God demands a high price be paid. And that high price is the life of this child, the very blood of the babe that's in Simeon's arms. His whole purpose in being here is to live and die, to redeem sinners. The reality of sin is grotesque. And expensive. And Simeon in verse 34 informs us that this Jesus is appointed for two things. Two things are going to be a part of his life. These two things are not uh, happening by chance. They're happening by appointment. Verse 34, the child's appointed one for the fall and rising of many. And that's referred to in two ways. First, Simeon's testimony is referring to the fall and rising, meaning the humbling and the lifting up, that those who would come to this child must first humble themselves in repentance and then be lifted up in salvation, lifted up in redemption. So he's going to be the cause of those who come to him in humility and raising them up. But even more so, and probably what our minds automatically think of, the fall and the rising also means separating those who come to him versus those who reject him. That this child... 
will take those who reject him. And because they reject him, they will surely fall into the pen of eternal punishment. They will fall and they will fall fast. They will fall hard and they will fall permanently. And when they fall because they reject this child, there will be no turning back. There's no redo, no reset, and no second chances. But also, those who receive him will be raised up to eternal glory with him in heaven. As quickly as those who fall, those who are raised too will be ushered into glory for eternity. And just like those who fall, fall permanently, so too those who are raised up are raised permanently. That's what this child is going to do. My testimony is not finished. He's going to cause the fall and rising of so many people. But the second thing he's appointed to there is to be a sign. And not just any sign. He's going to be a sign that's opposed. He's going to be a sign that's spoken against, a sign that's fought against. And we know Jesus is that sign. He's that clear and accurate sign pointing to God. In fact, we know Jesus is the only sign pointing to God. And it's because of that that people will oppose Him. Because we get down right down to it and really man does not want to think that they have no part in their own salvation. The pride of our hearts doesn't allow us to think that we play no part in saving ourselves. That's why every false religion rises up. That's why people take God's holy law and turn it into a system of legalism. Because man wants to play a part in his salvation. And when this sign, when this child says you can't, they oppose him. That's why the Pharisees oppose him, the Sadducees oppose him. That's why the Roman government is going to oppose him. You mean I can't be self-righteous? You mean the mighty Roman government can't earn its own salvation? This sign will say no. And Simeon says at the end of verse 34, the thoughts from many hearts are going to be revealed by this child as those who claim to be righteous will be found opposing the pure righteousness of God. Those who say they're the religious elite, those who say they walk with God, those who say they know the Scriptures will be the same people found at the end of Jesus' life saying crucify Him, crucify Him. All of their hearts are going to be laid bare before the public. All of their hearts are going to be revealed. It will be revealed that they are nothing more than self-righteous and still condemned. So the evil of man's hearts will be revealed when they reject and scorn the free gift of God just because they are told that He is the only way to heaven. Isn't that still true today? It's still such a theme today. Christ is still appointed for the fall and rising of many. Christ is still appointed as a sign to point people to Christ, to God, but He's still opposed. And He's still laying bare the thoughts of many evil hearts. So when God says in Genesis 6-5 that the thoughts of mankind, the thoughts of their heart are evil continually, it is true. We still see it today. And the evilness of man's heart is laid bare in rejecting the free gift of salvation simply because God says you must turn from your sin. So we know in the life of Christ, it's no secret for us who have read the Gospels and been in church 
the Pharisees and other Jews will oppose Jesus for his whole life on earth. They oppose his life. They oppose his message. They even oppose his miracles. You're doing your works by Satan. They oppose him to his death. And then even after his resurrection, they oppose him in his life. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said that not believing in Jesus and not believing the gospel was the highest expression of man's depravity. Not trusting in Jesus and accepting the free gift of God is the highest form of sin there is in humanity. And Simeon says it to the 40-day-year-old child. There will be so many who reject you. You're going to live a hard life Jesus. That's nothing to our Lord, praise God, that doesn't deter him, but the reality is he does and did live a hard life. Was scorned, rejected by so many people. And so he may be a sign for people to be saved, but the reality is that the majority of people will violently reject him, and not just him, they will violently reject his children, the church. So that even when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's killing Christians in opposition to Christ. So, Simeon informs Mary and really Joseph here in verse 34 and 35 that your son is going to divide the world between those who fall and those who rise, between those who oppose and those who receive. He's going to divide them like the farmer does the wheat and the tares. Going to divide the condemned and the redeemed. Simeon also there in verse 35 directs a specific message to Mary. He says, A sword's going to pierce through your own soul also. There's no doubt here that that refers directly to the suffering of Christ on the cross, the death that he's going to die. And Simeon's telling her, when, when Jesus will suffer, Mary, so will you. And, and mothers and grandparents here, you can understand that, can't you? When Christ hangs on the cross, Mary, you're going to experience that. And in fact, Mary, you're probably going to be more in tune with His sufferings than any other person on the face of the earth. Every flogging, every beating, every thorn that's in His brow, every nail in His body, every drop of blood that leaves his body, Mary, you're going to suffer through it. You're going to feel the sting of it. You're going to feel the pain of it as though your own soul is being split apart. That's the high price of the salvation of God. That's the reality of sin. So here in one passage, we're confronted with the glorious, glorious picture that God would forgive sin and yet at the same time confronted with the grotesque and horrid nature of sin itself. Because this child will, praise God, be the salvation for all people, but he'll have to pay for it with the price of his life. That's how important sin is. He's going to suffer on the cross So here at the cross, because of this child, Simeon's telling us that the picture of God's justice and the picture of God's love is going to come colliding together into man's salvation. That's how this salvation will be bought. 
That's how it's going to be secured. God's justice is going to kill this child. But it's also God's love that sends him there for us. So understand the high price being paid for this salvation. Understand that it's a price that's more pricey than any other price in the universe. It costs God Himself coming out of heaven to die. The testimony of Jesus doesn't end there. That would be enough for me. That's weighty. That's glorious. It's a beautiful picture that we have here. We have Simeon sharing the gospel by testifying to our Lord here. Testifying to this child. And I'm, I'm personally filled there. That, that's enough for me. But Scripture doesn't stop there. We move now to a woman named Anna. And there's a lot of similarities there between Anna and Simeon. A lot of the same picture going on here. Luke tells us a little bit about her person. She's older. She's advanced in years. Some people think she's even over 100 years old. There's a little variance there um, in verse 37. Most of our Bibles translate it that she's been a widow until the age of 84. It's possible that it could be translated that she's been a widow for 84 years. Nonetheless, we have here an older woman, experienced woman, advanced and aged, and she's been widowed for a very, very long time. Which says something about her um, commitment. She's going to devote her widowed life to God. As we will see here in just a moment. She's faithful there. You look into verse 37. Doesn't depart from the temple. She's worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. There's several thoughts about this kind of a woman. Some people think she actually had an apartment in or near the temple. That her advanced age and her faithfulness had earned her a dwelling place that close to the temple of God, which was normally just reserved for the Levites and the, the priest. But she's nonetheless there at every service, every time she can offer a sacrifice, every time she can experience worship, she's there. And she's not just worshiping at the temple, she's the kind of lady that worships with her life, night and day. She's devoted to God. Night and day, she's fixed upon Him. Much like Simeon, who is righteous and devout, we could say the same about Anna. She is a woman of faith. And she's also mentioned as a prophetess. So she's old, widowed, faithful, faithful, a worshiping woman, and a prophetess. She speaks God's Word to those who will listen. She's going to do that here in verse 38. And we're reminded here, just like we were with Simeon, that it's those who are righteous and those who are committed to God who get to enjoy not only the blessing of working for God, but enjoying God Himself. She gets to share in the same privilege that Simeon gets to share, and she is able to look into the face of Jesus. And she testifies even herself by her own actions here. In two ways, they're mentioned in verse 38. First, when she comes up, she's coming into the temple. She approaches the group of people with Simeon and Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus. And she begins to first give thanks to God. 
She knows the significance of what Simeon has just said. She's present for his testimony. She knows exactly what he's saying. This is the salvation of the world. This is God's salvation. And so like Simeon, she's bursting with praise. She's bursting with thanksgiving. Because what is being testified about this child is worth praising God for. Moves her heart to adoration. God has been faithful and gracious. She knows this. She knows that in Simeon's arms lies the salvation of all mankind. But second, she testifies by proclaiming this child at the end of verse 38 to the remnant of people who are still faithfully waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here is that redemption. And Anna, not only bursting with praise, bursting with proclamation to tell people about it. The redemption of God is here. The redemption of God has come. He's lying in Simeon's arms. She's so moved by this child and so moved by what she hears Simeon say of him that she is unashamed to speak of the glorious event. No matter what people in the temple would have thought, you're a crazy old lady talking about a child. She doesn't care. She's proclaiming this Messiah. And so what is interesting here is that whereas Simeon asked for death, Anna, because of this child, comes to life. She's bursting in celebration. She can't contain herself. She's motivated. She's energized. She's moving She's become active. She's so moved by God's grace revealed in this child that she has to tell other people and attribute all glory to God. Is that not just the most accurate response to Jesus? Part of her testimony is also a direct fulfillment of Simeon's testimony. When Simeon says that this salvation is for all people, the Holy Spirit through the author Luke explicitly reminds us through Anna that all people also means male and female. That God's pinnacle creation, that humankind is represented here by this older man and this older woman, that God has come to save humanity as a whole. Woman is not saved through her husband. Woman is not saved through her children, through her grandchildren. She is saved by Christ, just like everybody else. So we have Simeon testifying to that nature. Now we have Anna testifying to that nature, that reality. And Simeon's confession is really simply confirmed here by Anna's testimony of praise and proclamation. Confirmed, reiterated yet again. Her testimony is that Jesus is worth this praise to God, worth this proclamation that God has been faithful to send the redemption of Jerusalem. I want you to imagine just for a moment if we were struck by so great a salvation as Simeon and Anna were. Imagine if you and your heart gripped what Simeon was saying here. Imagine if you could look into the face of Jesus, the face of God like this, and be moved like they 
were moved. We would always have a kingdom focus with a heart of thanksgiving and an extreme desire to proclaim the gospel, wouldn't we? In fact, I think God would be gracious to us to allow us to see people saved. Because we're scattering the seed of this salvation so broadly. We're like Anna, living a life of celebration, a life of thanksgiving and proclamation to anyone who would ever listen to the news of Christ. And so as we kind of wrap up this passage, I want to highlight here that this is the promised, the far-reaching salvation that makes Simeon ready to die, Anna come alive with praise and proclamation, and Mary and Joseph marvel at Jesus. And that this child is like we've seen, he's going to pay the high price for sin. But he's also going to be the source of a changed life. Simeon and Anna are not the same because of this event. Mary and Joseph aren't the same because of this event. They've patiently, faithfully been waiting. God has been gracious to allow them to experience something like this. Their lives have been changed. And these reactions produced within them, a longing for eternity, a wonder at Christ, and a desire to proclaim Him are reactions that should be true of us. These are the same things that should be said of us because the same salvation should spark within us these same thoughts and desires as these two people. It's this salvation that Simeon talks about that should make us willing to leave this world and be in a better home like Simeon. It's this salvation that should make us stand in amazement and in wonder at God's deep love and grace in our lives, in our world. It's this salvation that should, like Anna, make a life of thanksgiving to God and a proclamation of Christ. So I would encourage you or exhort you in four ways from this passage in closing. First, I would encourage you, live a life of faithfulness and righteousness like Anna and Simeon because God is faithful to His Word to use those who trust in Him. Again, a faithful and a godly life not only allows you to be used by God, it allows you to enjoy God. Had they not been faithful to follow the Spirit's leading, they'd have missed out on their greatest blessing this side of heaven. Second, I would encourage you to realize, like Mary and Joseph, the significance of the kind of salvation that God has provided for humanity. It is not by any means a limited salvation, meaning that it runs out, it expires. It's not like it only reaches so far. Any person from any walk of life may be saved. It's not reserved for the elite, the rich, or the self-righteous. It's reserved for the broken, the guilty, and the condemned. Understand, just, just for a moment, God's willingness to save the sinner. I'm not that way yet. I'm not sanctified entirely yet. When someone does me wrong, I tend to be bitter or angry about it. Part of being made new. But praise God, 
that when people do him wrong, he desires to redeem them, provide a way of salvation. Thirdly, let me encourage and exhort you, church. You cannot know this Savior and remain silent or ungrateful about him. Just like Anna responded, we too should have the same response. We should be so awestruck by Christ that we are totally living a life of gratefulness to God and constantly telling people about Him. We should leave church every week energized by meeting with Christ. We should wake up, spend time with God in His Word and in prayer and be motivated by Him to tell people the good news of Christ. We should be so dwelling and meditating upon our own salvation that we would be motivated to tell people about salvation. Fourthly and lastly, I encourage you to realize the high price paid for your salvation and the salvation of others. Because when you do, you won't keep it hidden in your own heart. You realize the significance of what it took for God to adequately save mankind. You'll be ashamed to hide that news, that message. I want you to announce to the world in godly abandonment the news of salvation. I want you to be so moved by it. Let me just close with one thing here. And in Romans 10, I had originally wanted to come to Romans 10 tonight. My heart has been beating for Romans 10. It's been my desire for the last couple of weeks. And I'm hoping next Sunday night we can come back to Romans 10 and look at it. Because we see the heart of an evangelist in Romans 10. And I think this theme ties at least loosely with what we've heard Simeon say and Anna do and the amazement of Mary and Joseph. I want you to hear the questions that you've heard before that are great questions asked by the Apostle Paul in verse 14. Actually, look up into verse 13. He quotes Joel. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 is what he quotes in verse 13. And he says... For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's exactly what Simeon has said about this child. Paul then asks these very piercing questions in verse 14. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That right there pierces our souls, does it not? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17 is rather important for our evangelism as individuals and as a church. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
How are they going to hear if someone doesn't tell them? And who's going to tell them if nobody ever goes? And if nobody's ever sent? Simeon lays before us a great salvation, a great Savior. He looks into the face of Christ and sees God's salvation. And this salvation sparks him to long for his eternal dwelling in heaven. It makes Mary and Joseph marvel that God would save the world. And it produces in Anna a reaction and response of gratitude and proclamation. And how can we not be the same? If we desire the world to know the truth of Christ and be saved, why are we not telling them? Why are there every bit of 8,000 people in Weatherford alone that are not found worshiping God on a given Sunday? And in fact, I would venture to say the number is higher than that. Why are we complacent and idle? And why are we not gathering on Wednesdays to beg God in our corporate time of prayer to save the lost? Why are we not burdened with the same burden of the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 Because we know this Savior in Luke 2. We know this salvation. How dare we idly wait by. And I am as guilty as the rest. But praise God, my heart and flames have been rekindled this week sharing the gospel with college students and international students and adults. This is what we must be marked by. A constant attitude of worship and praise for this great salvation sent through Christ, but also an urgent desire to proclaim that message. So I hope and I pray that Simeon's testimony has refreshed you, maybe also convicted you to um, be moved yet again by this Savior. Remember your first love. Remember the moment you were made alive by God. And let that fuel your life from this point on. Father, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you for your word again. In it we find truth. In it we find salvation. Lord, I thank you that you are willing to come and be our sacrifice, our substitute. I thank you that you fulfilled the law according to Moses, verses 21 through 24 there. You were presented to the Lord, in the temple, you were circumcised on the eighth day. You did all that the law required so that you could be the righteous, adequate substitute for our salvation so that what Simeon says about you would be true. You have secured for us eternal redemption. God, I pray in my own heart that makes me spark for my eternity with you. I pray that that makes me marvel at you. I pray that makes me motivated to share you. And live a life for you. Your word is rich. And it's sweet. And we thank you for passages like this that reveal who you are. Let us not forget. May your word marinate in our hearts this week. And may it change our outlook. Upon the unbelieving world around us. May we share this salvation with them. In your name Lord Jesus I pray. Amen.